Welcome to Diversity Beyond the Checkbox, brought to you by the Diversity Movement, where we discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion topics with leaders that make our world a more welcoming and supportive place for all. We can't wait to share with you what's coming next, but in this compilation episode, we're looking back on the conversations we've had with DEI leaders from season two, as we get excited for the next season coming in June. Also, I wanted to let you know we have a new podcast called Winning with Diversity, where our VP of Business Strategy, Shelley Willingham, talks DEI through a business lens. Specifically in the first series, how you can think about DEI while working in a startup. Go check that out on any podcast app, and we'll have a link in the show notes. So without further ado, here are some of my favorite moments from Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. You know, it really comes back to this feeling of wanting to keep people safe. And I don't know where, like, you know, what sort of baggage I have around that. But that's, you know, that's something that's really a big part of who I am is, is wanting everyone, everyone in this world to feel like they have the freedom to walk through the world with dignity, Mm. whatever that means for them. So that means however they might express themselves, whatever diversity dimension is part of their identity they should have the freedom to just be themselves my goodness it's really not a big ask right or at least it shouldn't be um but i feel really passionately about that and so a lot of the things that i talk about related to diversity and inclusion are truly about including diverse voices who are your Mm -hmm. customers including diverse voices among your team members how do we get there And again, it comes back to being a pragmatic idealist. I can certainly tell you the why all day long, why it's so important. But when I'm giving a speech or leading a training, it's about how can we get there in practical steps? Let's break this down. Let's keep it simple because really treating people with dignity and respect is not (laughs) rocket science. But, But how do we get there and how do we get there systemically what are some of the systemic changes that we can make together to truly allow more people to feel included why is showing diversity in storybooks important to you and so important in fact that you start a business dedicated to making these children feel seen (laughs) yeah that's a really important question It, it sort of gets at our why and, and so I appreciate the question. You know, the short answer is because I became convinced that our world needed it. When I looked at, man, the way that the world is and the way that I think most of us think that the world should be, I just saw a gap. And the more that I explored it, the more convinced I became that we could build a company that, that would fit that void and, and could really make a, a tangible difference. When I was a kid, I, I was just always taught the truth that every person matters, that whatever you look like or sound like, or however you think, whatever, whoever you are, you matter. Mm. And when I was a kid, I just remember believing that truth the same way that I believed two plus two equals four. And I, yeah, it was crazy, Jackie. I remember I was thinking back earlier this week and, and I just remember in elementary school in like second or third or fourth grade and learning about the civil rights movement. And it just, mm-hmm. it rocked me 
to learn that, you know, that, like there's this little boy who was my good friend, just one of the guys, and he was this yeah. little African-American boy. And I remember having a conversation with my parents and saying, how is it that some people in the past and worse some people today yeah. would view him as, as mattering less than me? And then later, later in life, I ended up becoming a Christian. And my core worldview helped me to, to put some rationale and some words and, and, and I think, you know, just some truth behind that belief set that I had always had. And I just believe like to my core, every person is made in the image of God. And because of that, we all have intrinsic worth. And when I see anybody, but particularly kids who either are told by other people or just come to believe that they don't matter as much because they can't see themselves represented in the content that they consume or the books that they read. It just breaks my heart. And when I saw that this idea for Keepsake Tales could really make a tangible difference, it, it wasn't a question of like, should I do this? It was, it was like a moral imperative of, I can't not do it. Like I, this is just something that I feel really called to do, so. And Cynthia, can you tell us with the focus that you've had to have to reach your level of success, where does that come from in your background? Ah, I had parents who knew that anything was possible if I was willing to put forth the effort and the hard work to achieve it. So my father was a um, sales, or not sales, he was a sergeant in the Air Force. And he sat me down when I was about six years old and he said, Sin May, because you know everybody in the South is named, middle name May. He said to me, Sin May, I've got some news for you and I want you to take this seriously. And I knew that when my father was speaking in that tone, he was serious. So he grew up in the Jim Crow South segregation. So keep in mind what I'm about to tell you is through his lens of how he viewed things growing up in the segregated South of Georgia. So he sits me down and he says, Sinmay, you have two strikes against you. You are a black girl. And I said, yes, I know, daddy. And he said, what that means for you is for the rest of your life, you're going to have to do things twice as hard to get half as recognized. Now, remember, this is his lens that he's looking through. So I said, okay, yes, daddy. And then he said, while I'm at it, I guess he had more to say while he was on his soapbox. He said, there are three types of people in the world. Those who make things happen, those who wait for things to happen, and those who wonder what the hell happened. He said, so basically what I'm trying to say to you is work really hard, harder than anybody else, and work and make things happen. Mm -hmm. So that's where it came from, from age six. That's amazing. It's funny, Cynthia, I had the same conversation with my grandfather, who's mm -hmm. also from the South. Yes. He's literally said the exact same thing. You have two strikes against you and you've got to work harder than anybody else. Yes. And I think a lot of us have had that sit down conversation with our parents or grandparents. Yes. Um, and, you know, because the, the playing field is not level. A friend of mine, his name is Jeremy, and he is a hardcore serious Republican and still to this day. But Jerry and I are friends. So we've maintained the relationship, Facebook, we call, we talk every now and then. 
He was on the ground at the rally in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. Okay. And so they were talking about all the reasons for the small crowds or big crowds or whatever. And I said, Jeremy, what happened on the ground? He said, well, he said, I think the city of Tulsa didn't want there to be a big crowd. So they kind of held us in line a little bit longer so people would go home. Like there was some shenanigans going on. I said, can you believe that, right? Does that, that make sense? You're on the ground. This is what happened. And I said, Jeremy, were there radical protesters? He said, nah, man. He said, everybody's full of shit. He said, there weren't any radical protesters. He said, there were people screaming Black Lives Matter, just like we were screaming Make America Great Again. But like, we were all representing our troop or whatever we wanted to do, but there was no radical protesters. The point is, what we're all being fed from all these different networks is designed to keep us at the most heightened sense of anger towards one another. So we forget that our leadership in Washington doesn't even work for a living. They don't even work, except we, ginning us up to in, stay in pissed off. In the last off. few weeks, we've used the word riots. I was coming of age in the 60s. I remember Rodney King. We've not seen riots. We've seen a little bit of, we've, I've seen isolated vandalism, limited breaking and entering, because folks were li- letting off a little bit of steam for some horrific things that have gone on recently and for 400 years. Letting off a little bit of steam. Not riots, not destruction. Burning cardboard in the street, big flames, is not destruction. And it's just what, we're just, the, the media, which is supposed to be the fourth leg of the democracy, is just feeding us this stuff to keep us at edge because they sell a lot of stuff that way. No one likes to admit they have a leg up, right? No one wants to think, oh, everyone, the myth of meritocracy is alive and well, especially in American culture. Well, I worked hard to get to where I am. I earned it every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that road might have been a lot easier for you. I, and it, I can identify with this. For example, I, I was not a fan of the privilege work until you know recently in my work, of course. But I used to say things like, well, I grew up poor. Or I had a single mom growing up. I didn't have things, you know. I had to work really hard to get to where I am. Well, there was a lot of privilege, actually, in my story. I was not poor. We were not in poverty. I did have food and I did have shelter. Um, I just didn't have the things I wanted. I had the things I needed. That's not poverty. That's not poor. You compare notes with somebody else and you become really, it becomes really clear your privilege and even saying that. Um, most people that are very poor don't even know it know any different. And then I, yeah, I worked hard. I got into college. I got a full ride scholarship. I got the big corporate job and did the corporate thing. And, you know, I I think there was a lot of wanting to believe that I tried hard, that I earned what I got. And I did. And my road was easier, right? And had I had a disability, it would have been harder for me. Had I not honestly had a good parent, um, I didn't have you know two you know fully participative parents, but I had one really good one. Mm-hmm. I believed in me and said things to me like, "I see you doing amazing things someday." Like you believe in women, I, I see you supporting women in your career. I mean, just to have somebody like that in your life, and that's a huge privilege that I had, even if we didn't have money and resources. So I think mm-hmm. unpacking this privilege thing to think, "Hey, where are the instances that I had to line up?" And where might I be able to use that to help others? And this is, again, the chance to be an ally. The more privilege you have, the more you can help. That's this right. is great. If you look at it that way, it's like, I didn't, instead of like, oh, great, I didn't deserve to be here. Oh, I have to, should just give everything back. Like, that's not the narrative that's helpful. Mm-hmm. 
Instead, yeah, you might have had an easier road to get to where you're at. No one's mad about that, but can we make it a little easier for other people? So if you look at the leadership of tech historically, it's been engineering. It's been, you know, it's been math majors, engineering, and, you know, science and technology. It's not been his, history majors and English majors and you know, language majors and arts majors and whatever. But when you look at diversity, inclusion, uh, equity and inclusion, that is a social phenomenon. And it requires a lot of social skills, particularly because you've got to get outside of your own group, group centricity. We are all group centric. We all have a group of people that, that are like us that we interact with. And then there's others who are not like us. Uh, and we have this sort of boundary. And the, and the tendency, if we're not careful, is, well, I'll just work with the people that I'm comfortable with, which are the people like me, and I won't work with everybody else. And what diversity, equity, and inclusion says is, well, A, okay, that's why you're, that's why you're not going to get more diverse. <laughs> yep. but, but B, uh, you're putting yourself at risk if, in fact, you need to connect with a diverse world in order to be successful. And, and so increasingly, as we're trying to, to engineer social change, whether it's around education or healthcare or social services or, or consumer products or whatever it is, we have a very, very diverse world. And we, we can't find ways to connect our enterprise to it. So I think the most common misconception about you know most atheists is that they're angry people and that the only reason that they either stopped or never believed in God is because um, you know, something bad happened to them when they were a kid or in church or they're angry at church people. Um, those things are probably possible reasons people might choose to leave their faith or, or challenge their beliefs. But, you know, the people that I talk to um, mostly have intellectual problems with spiritual faith. And it's, the, and I find them very earnest people. Um, you know, which I would consider myself a sincere person. I sincerely believe what I was taught and I sincerely don't believe it anymore. Ironically, the question is, is, is you believe it or not, Christians get just about the same kind of heat because most people want to say, Christians, why y'all so judgmental? Now, in all honesty, in all candid, candidness, there are some judgmental Christians. I just happen to not be one of them because I, I, I try not to put myself in a place just because you know, of what I believe as far as, you know, what I stand on as far as God and the word, I don't want to be in the place where, okay, now I'm sitting here as the high judge because, and, and, and believe it or not, some Christians are even judgmental against other Christians. So, and, and definitely against atheists, because I've seen it, I've heard it, I've seen it. Yeah. But, but like Christians said, if you can get to a place where you can, where you don't get into a, a back and forth shouting debate match, and if you, if, if you sit there and listen, that's the key, hearing each other and listening, You'd be amazed what can come out of that conversation. And uh, and ironically, uh, Jackie asked me to be on this. I'm just finding out that people that I've known for years are atheists. So it's also interesting to play this idea out and the work around it out beyond the individual and start looking into the cultural and systematic institutional pieces um, that are really impacting a lot of that individual experience. Absolutely. And how does implicit bias uh, of educators affect the children that they're educating? Yeah, so it shows up in a couple of different ways. And, you know, for, for the purpose of this conversation, as an example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use race as our kind of anchor. But 
one of the things that is, has come to the forefront and is actually what Dr. Gilliam was, has been studying is how implicit bias impacts the exclusionary discipline for children. So access in early childhood education to quality programs is, is wildly important and already inequitable in many ways. When you do get access to those programs, what can also happen is depending on who you are and how you show up and maybe how your teacher views your behaviors, it can take away that access pretty quickly. So we have seen in a lot of the studies and in our own experience how children, specifically black children and even more specifically black boys, are viewed as um, more likely to get in trouble. The same behavior that maybe they're doing that their counterpart is also doing is, is much more noticed and, and called out and, and disciplined in a really different way. And so the impact beyond access is also shaping their identity as a student. So if your very earliest experiences in early childhood settings like ours is that you don't belong, you're, you're, you're too bad, you can't succeed, like you're always getting in trouble, that sets like a trajectory for their educational experience and their lived experience beyond that. What I, I talk about in, in one of my keynotes is this idea, this trademarked concept of a lead language. And so if you're familiar with a love language, then you know that a love language is not, nothing but the way in which you best receive love um, mm -hmm. or give love, right? It just kind of depends. Some people have a love language that's different than the way that they receive and give. Totally get it. Well, as I'm thinking about leadership, <clears throat> one day I'm like, well, the same way that people have love languages, people probably have lead languages as well. So if a love language is the way that you best receive love, a lead language is nothing but the, the way in which you best receive leadership. And so I begin to think about, okay, if I'm, I'm writing a book right now about the, the lead languages, and I wanted to take that concept and kind of juxtapose it against generations. Yeah. And so what I've done is just taking a look at all that I know about generations and, and taking a stab at giving each generation a primary lead language, the way in which they best receive leadership. Yeah. I think as we talk about differences, this may be a good way to just give you one or two differences across generations. But for a baby boomer, baby boomers grew up in a time where, you know, authority was was based on tenure and seniority. Mm -hmm. So it's really about earning your keep. It's about putting in the work. And once you get that title, I know you deserve that title because you've put in the work. And so you get a certain level of respect from me, you know what I mean, if you're in the organization. And so for a baby boomer, their lead language, their primary lead language is really respect. If you want to get the best out of a baby boomer, just because of how they've kind of experienced work and life, then you have to show them respect, respect of their time, respect of their tenure, their seniority, what they bring to the table, respect for the relationships they've cultivated over the last several decades that they've, they've been in the workforce. So especially as a younger leader, if you're leading baby boomers, um, it's important that you show them that respect and they appreciate it. What is one piece of advice that you would want to give to baby boomers. It could be about 
anything. It could be about the way you want to be treated in a job. It could be a way, a misperception. What's one piece that you would want to give to baby boomers? I would say check on your strong millennial employees. I think oftentimes we think these millennials are go-getters. They're always wanting to, you know, go to their necks and they want to be always advancing and always wanting to learn more. But sometimes they just want to be able to talk and they want someone who wants to listen to them and be able to express their feelings because we live in a generation now where everyone, you know, always has to achieve, achieve, achieve. And if you're not, you know, at the top, then you're a nobody. So I think we do achieve great things, but at the same time, it's just like we need time to reflect and to, you know, be proud of our accolades. And we need to have someone who say, hey, you're doing a good thing. We need that support. And we won't vocalize it sometimes. Sometimes we'll just keep going and we'll keep internalizing because we're taught like, okay, don't have feelings. And, you know, you're an athlete or you're, you know, this performer, you have to be on all the time. So they need to have that space where they can say, hey, it's okay to like let that guard down and really just express yourself. Gabby and Mary, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Can you tell me a little about yourselves? Oh, thank you, Jackie. We're happy to be here. <laughs> Wanna tell them about yourself, Gabby? Go ahead. Yeah, I have five brothers and I'm the only girl in my family. That's awesome. That's right. So we have six children, five boys. Gabby's not the youngest. Mm -hmm. Gabby's 22. We live in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Awesome. Can you tell us about Gabby's grounds? At first, I want to get a restaurant. Then when I want to get my own restaurant, I save all my money in my checks. Then I tell my mom I want to do my own business. Then me and my mom went in Wilmington to visit a coffee shop. Then my mom said I could do a coffee shop, but I cannot do a restaurant. Then I said, let's do it. As you've heard, we've had some amazing guests join us for some very important DEI conversations. And I'm so excited for you to hear what's in store for season four. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow this podcast so you'll be notified when we come back in June. Until then, be sure to visit thediversitymovement.com for more podcasts, articles, and educational content. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson, and I'll talk with you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.